We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 348 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Traverse 3. This is a CBS News special report. A ride on the moon. The flight of Apollo 15. This morning, astronauts Scott and Irwin make their third lunar traverse. This broadcast is sponsored by Western Electric, the people who make communications equipment for the Bell System, and by orange-flavored and new grape-flavored Tang for spacemen and Earth families. Reporting from the CBS News Space Headquarters in New York, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good morning. Well, Apollo 15 astronauts David Scott and Jim Irwin are putting on their goggles and their gloves and their dusters, and they're just about to go motoring again today. They seem to enjoy the sport. They've been out two days on the moon, and they're about to make their third trip on the moon. About to set out on the third walk, as we used to call them. Now they're rides on the moon. On this, their last and busiest day on the moon's surface. Besides the walk, they'll blast off this afternoon to rejoin Al Worden in that Apollo command ship that's been orbiting the moon, waiting for them, and uh, spending the time in some very important scientific research with cameras and other scientific devices. The moon men got some... Extra sleep uh, last night. They were left to uh, sleep an extra hour. They're getting underway late because of the busy program they had yesterday. Uh, Sunday's walk and ride was over an hour late uh, getting started itself, and it lasted seven hours and 13 minutes. And that uh, is a new world, uh, excuse me, a new universe record. Today's excursion aboard the world's first moon car, or the moon's first world car, uh, will take them to a different part of Hadley Rill from that which they visited on Saturday. They'll be collecting rocks from the rim of the 1,200-foot deep, mile-wide canyon. It is early, or late, depending upon how you look on it. And if time permits, they also hope to visit nearby craters, which some geologists think are of volcanic origin. But today's ride may be cut short by as much as two hours. It certainly will be cut short uh, by an hour and a half or so to give the astronauts plenty of time to prepare for liftoff from the moon. That's uh, due at 11 minutes after 1 this afternoon, Eastern Daylight Time, and it's got to go off on schedule, or they have to do a lot of rewriting of the form book uh, to achieve that rendezvous and docking this afternoon. At any rate, Scott and Irwin will be hard-pressed to equal yesterday's performance, certainly, when they believe they may have found a rock dating right back to the origins of the moon some four and a half billion years ago. As Scott put it, I think we've found what we came for, 
The mission control has advised the two men to take it nice and easy on today's lunar excursion because all the prime goals of their moon stay, according to Houston, already have been achieved. Now, that's not quite what uh, Houston has said all along up to today because they had five principal areas they wanted to explore, and one of them is left for today's exploration. That's that North Crater area. In Mission Control's words, though, it's all gravy from now on. And everybody seems relaxed, uh, both in Houston and uh, up there on the moon today. Uh, out at uh, Grumman Aerospace Corporation, Nelson Benton at, the, uh, at our simulated uh, uh, lunar rover and uh, lunar module, Falcon, can take a look at today's lunar activities for us. Walter, the lunar rover, as you know, has performed rather well. There was a little bit of trouble with the steering the first day, but they took care of that pretty well. It still has one more ride with the astronauts to be taken, and it also has some functions that it will perform after, or actually during and after the astronauts leave the moon. Perhaps the most interesting function that it performs after Scott and Erwin get back into the limb is the matter of taking television pictures and sending them back to Earth of the liftoff of the ascent stage itself. The camera will be operated from the ground, and the ground controllers have to operate it a bit like a quarterback throws a football to a, a receiver who is cutting across the field. He throws the ball where the receiver is going to be, not where he is. The controllers on the ground will have to handle the camera uh, pretty much that way, too. Also... There's enough battery power left in the rover, it's hoped, that the television camera will be able to be turned on from the ground on Friday to send back to Earth some uh, television pictures of a solar eclipse that will be visible from the moon. Of course, all of this expensive equipment will be left on the moon, but it'll function uh, during the time it's there for a while anyway. Walter? And we've heard from uh, the communications link between the Mission Control Center in Houston and uh, the... Apollo 15 Lunar Lander Falcon, that they are go for depressurization. They are depressurizing the uh, Falcon right now, getting ready to merge from the Falcon to the lunar surface for this, the third day, and their last trip. Our coverage of today's lunar exploration will continue in a moment. On their third and final day on the moon, Capcom Joe Allen woke Dave and Jim by speaking in German, saying, Schön guten Tag, wie geht's euch? Which means, very good day, how are you? Dave replied, Guten Morgen, mein Herr, ist gut. Which means, good morning, sir, everything's fine. This was Joe and Dave's way of paying a small tribute to Werner von Braun and his Huntsville team, many of whom were also German and they had given birth to the giant Saturn V, which had delivered Apollo 15 to the moon. And we have a beautiful day planned for the two of you. Very good. A beautiful good morning, Jim. Has the sun risen over Hadley Mountain yet? Well, give us about 30 minutes here. We'll take a look. I wouldn't be at all surprised, and I've got things for you to copy. I'm standing by. Joe Allen liked to think he was cut from the same cloth as the pilot astronauts, but working for Dave Scott had been a lesson in humility. The man's stamina was simply amazing. 
It was beyond him how Scott could go through the long days of meetings and simulations without the slightest sign of wearing down. Seemingly as productive and alert at 10 o'clock at night as he had been at breakfast that morning. No question, it did wonders for his motivation to see his boss going at it so relentlessly. But sometimes it was all Alan could do to keep up. He was reminded of the climactic scene from one of his favorite movies, The Hustler. Jackie Gleason, as Minnesota Fats, was 24 hours into his pool room confrontation with Paul Newman as Fast Eddie. Just as it seemed that Eddie was about to clean the old master out of his last dollar, Fats takes time out. Going into the seedy little bathroom, he washes his face, cleans his fingernails, puts on a fresh shirt and a tie, and emerges into the smoke-filled room like a new man. Fast Eddie, he says. Let's shoot some pool. Fats went on to win back all his money and win the match. Alan told Scott about it one day, and after that, when Scott would see him flagging midway through a late evening planning session, he would lean over and say, Come on, Joe, let's shoot a little pool. Now, as Scott and Irwin finished suiting up for a final day of exploration, Alan asked Scott if he and Irwin might be ready to shoot a little pool themselves. Roger, I was wondering if you are going to shoot a little pool today with a Colorado Fats there. I was thinking the same thing. Now came the endurance lap. Monday, August 2nd, 4.07 a.m. Houston time. Six days, 19 hours, 32 minutes, mission elapsed time. Outside the limb, the first men to spend three days on the moon saw the sun almost directly overhead, sending its fierce heat down on Hadley Base. Even within their suits, Scott and Irwin felt its warmth. They had been nearly two hours behind schedule getting to sleep last night and waking up this morning, and that had cost them. The liftoff time slated for later this day could not be changed. Joe Allen had already told them that this third traverse would be shortened to only four or five hours. Scott and Irwin planned to visit Hadley Real and then... If there was time, the mysterious group of craters called the North Complex. A young survey geologist named Jerry Schaber had advanced the idea that the North Complex might actually be a cluster of small volcanoes. Even if they were impact craters, Schaber said, they would still be worth the trip. The largest was almost 2,500 feet across big enough to have punched through the frosting of mare basalt and bring up chunks of the more ancient rocks underneath. The North Complex had not been on the original Traverse plan, but when Scott heard Schaber's idea, he personally made time for it. Solving that mystery was one of Scott and Irwin's fondest hopes for the mission, but they would have to wait. Alan was sending them to the ALSEP site for a showdown with Scott's nemesis, the drill. 
It was waiting for them when they reached the ALSEP, sticking out of the ground just as Scott had left it the day before, when he had tried unsuccessfully to extract the deep core sample. Scott had already begun to wonder whether the core was worth the time and effort it was costing. Fighting their pressure suits, the men bent over to grab the drill's handles and pulled as hard as they could, but the drill did not budge. Scott gave a Herculean pull. One, two, three, and it just barely moved. Dave, I'm thinking maybe if you get on one side, I'll get on the other. And maybe the two of us, by hooking an arm under that, can lift it up. Okay, let's try it. Okay, you say when. One, two, three. One, two, three. Let me get, a, get this down a little bit. I'd like to get down and get a... Right, it's got a long way to go. Yeah, I know. But if we break it loose, one, two, three. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, let's hold it. I, I uh, suspected as much. In Mission Control, Joe Allen listened with amazement. Scott and Irwin represented as much physical strength as any two men in the astronaut corps. In training, the drill had cut through Texas hard pan soil like butter. It had never caused any problems, going in or coming out. It was, as Scott would say, a nutton. What Alan did not know, and what no one knew, was the lunar soil had been so thoroughly compacted and tamped down by eons of micrometeorite impacts that there was barely any room for the drill to penetrate. Once driven into the moon, it might as well have been in a vice. At this point, Scott was ready to give up. But Irwin was not ready to give up. He suggested that each of them hook an arm under one of the handles, and that helped. They managed to pull the core about one third of the way out. I, I could put a lot of pressure on it this way. Let me try it. Okay, one, two, three. There it comes. One, two. Roger, we copy. 
Now the men crouched down and each put a shoulder under a handle and tried to stand up. One, two, three. A little more progress. Another push. Then another. They were winning. Suddenly. There we go. The drill flew upward and as Irwin said, we almost flew with it. drill was finally out. But Scott's troubles were not over. The entire core sample was 10 feet long. Therefore, to bring the core home, they would have to dismantle it into sections. And for some unknown reason, the vise from the rover's toolkit refused to work properly. Then Scott realized with exasperation that it had been assembled backward. No wonder it wouldn't grip. Here again, a tool wrongly assembled before launch cost them extra time and effort. Irwin, meanwhile, broke out a hand wrench. Eleven more minutes went by while they struggled to dismantle the sections. Scott's patience was dwindling. Every minute spent on this one sample was time lost for the explorations to come. The trip to the North Complex hung in the balance. Scott wasn't the only one losing patience. For a while now, in Mission Control, Joe Allen could hear voices on the flight director's loop from McDivitt and the others in the back row of Mission Control pushing flight director Jerry Griffin to abandon the deep core sample and get on with the next item on the timeline. Irwin was to take a movie of Scott driving the rover for the engineers. But Griffin who was fully committed to the science of Apollo 15, wasn't going to be diverted. He understood the value of the deep core sample, and as the managers pressured him, he walked over to Allen's console and said quietly, You worry about that core. I'll take care of the back row. 
On the moon, the struggle continued. Scott and Irwin managed to disassemble the core, but only partially. That would have to do for now. Twenty-eight minutes after they began, Alan told them to move on. They would pick it up on the way back to the lunar module at the end of the traverse. Scott wasn't sure where they would put it in the command module, but he would think of something. That deep core costs too much time to leave on the moon. When the deep core was finally scrutinized in the lunar receiving lab, it would teach what geologist Don Wilhelms would call the lesson of the moon's antiquity and changelessness. Scientists would identify no less than 42 separate layers of soil. The bottom layer had apparently remained undisturbed for half a billion years. But the time the astronauts spent on extracting this unique treasure had taken its toll on the plan for the day. There was not enough time left to explore the North Complex, which was a huge disappointment for Scott. In the years that followed, Scott often wondered if the unique data revealed by the lunar core sample had been worth abandoning the exploration of the North Complex. Fortunately, the revelations that awaited them at Hadley Real made up for some of their disappointment at the time. With the deep core struggle behind them, Scott and Irwin were glad to be heading west toward Hadley Real. They had expected a short, easy drive, but instead found themselves pitching over dunes like ridges and troughs. Here, Irwin thought, was a place where they could get lost. But even as Falcon disappeared over the horizon behind him, the first time astronauts had ventured out of sight of their lander, Irwin felt no anxiety. So familiar was this valley to him now. Impatient to reach the reel, he urged Scott to take the shortest route, but Scott methodically stuck to the heading Alan had given them, telling Irwin, We're making good time. As they neared the canyon's edge, Scott's attention was diverted to a small exploration he could not pass up, a small fresh crater that would prove the youngest ever visited on the moon, a scant million years old. When Scott and Irwin finally stood at the edge of Hadley Reel, they were rewarded with a sight no one had expected. On the far wall, which was in full sunlight, distinct layers of rock poked through a mantle of dust like the levels of some ancient civilization. They were surely lava flows. Over many millions of years, perhaps a succession of outpourings had piled atop one another to build up the valley floor. This was the first and only time that Apollo astronauts would find records of the moon's volcanic life. Not as fragments scattered around the rim of an impact crater, but in place, preserved from the day they were formed. This was true lunar bedrock, and there was more of it on this side of the reel. Scott and Irwin gathered their tools and went to work. There was no sharp drop-off at the rim of Hadley Reel. It was more like the gentle shoulder of a hill, and thankfully the ground was firm. Effortlessly, Scott continued past the rim and loped several yards down the slope. 
Even now he could not see the bottom. It was hidden from view beyond the curved flank. He turned and ascended once more. All around him and Irwin were big slabs of tan-colored basalt, shot through with holes from long, vacant gas bubbles. Some of the boulders were scored by layers in miniature. But no sooner had Scott hammered off a chip than Joe Allen passed up word that he and Irwin would have to return to the rover to collect a rake sample, and then it would be time to leave. On another day, Scott might have put up a fight, but today he was just too tired. However, in the back room, the geologist decided that the reel was worth more time. Urgently, Scott called Irwin to join him a little farther down the slope where masses of dark rock awaited. As they set to work, the men heard a distinct edge of nervousness in Joe Allen's voice. And out of sheer curiosity, how far back from what you would call the edge of the reel are the two of you standing now? Dave, how far back from the lip of the reel do you think you're probably standing? Can't tell. I can't see the lip of the reel. Okay, it looks like you're standing on the edge of a precipice on TV. Is why we're asking. Oh, 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 go, Joe. It slopes right on down here. Uh, the same slope. It's just a, a little inflection here. Scott had just managed to suppress a laugh. From Houston's perspective, it did indeed appear the astronauts were standing on the edge of a precipice. In fact, the slope down which they descended was only about 5 to 10 degrees, and the maximum slope of the reel was only 25 degrees, which was not steep for such a canyon-like formation. But Scott could just imagine the back row of mission control, McDivitt, Kraft, Patron, and the others, tied up in knots, their worst nightmare splashed on the big screen and multiplied on every TV monitor because it looked like their boys on the moon were about to wander over the edge of a cliff. In truth, this slope was much easier to negotiate than the slope at the base of Mount Hadley Delta from the previous day. The reel's rim and upper slopes were covered in hard-packed regolith and small rocks, compared with the much softer and unconsolidated lunar soil they had encountered at the base of the mountains. The deep reel held no fear as far as they were concerned. They did two hours intensive work collecting rock samples at the site, but Houston was clearly relieved when they neared the end of their scheduled time there. Then they heard Joe Allen announce that it was time to go. Scott and Irwin headed back to the rover, wishing that they had more time. One thing was still true, and it would be true throughout the Apollo era. Those on Earth who carried the burden of responsibility for human lives would greet each new exploration with apprehension, while the men on the moon, confident and committed to their work, wanted only to push a little bit farther. As they were finishing up at Hadley Reel, they were officially told that the North Complex had been canceled, and so they reluctantly made their way back to the lunar module, 
that could not afford to fall behind schedule on launch day. At 1.11 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, they were due to bring their stay on the lunar surface to a close, to lift away from the moon and rendezvous with Endeavor. As they rocked and rolled their way back to base camp, with the majestic mountains ahead of them, Jim revealed for the first and only time on the lunar surface his deeply held religious belief. Oh, look at the mountains today, Jim, when they're all sunlit. Isn't that beautiful? It really is. My golly, that's just super. It's, you know, unreal. Dave, I'm reminded of a favorite biblical passage from Psalms. I look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. But of course, we get quite a bit from Houston, too. Scott was too focused on keeping the rover on track to reply. Finally, back at Hadley Base, the rover tracks converged on the foil-clad lunar module. The ground was littered with gear and stowage bags attesting to the activity of the past three days. When everything was packed up, Scott attended to a task that wasn't on the checklist. He had thought he might not get to do it, but it was Joe Allen's idea, and he didn't want to disappoint him. Centuries before, the story was told, Galileo Galilei had stood atop the leaning tower of Pisa and dropped two weights of different sizes, proving that gravity acts equally on all objects regardless of their mass. It was Dave Scott's intention to duplicate that experiment on the moon in the near vacuum of space. Well, in my left hand, I have a, a feather. In my right hand, a hammer. And I guess one of the reasons uh, we got here today was because of a gentleman named Galileo a long time ago who made a rather significant discovery about falling objects in gravity fields. And we thought that uh, where would be a better place to confirm his uh, findings than on the moon? And uh, so we thought we'd try it here for you. Uh, the feather happens to be appropriately a falcon feather for our falcon. And I'll uh, drop the two of them here, and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. Scott held the hammer and the feather out in front of him and let go. They fell slowly through the vacuum, side by side. And for one brief moment, the spirit of the great Italian scientist was conjured on the airless ground of Hadley Base. When the hammer and the feather hit the dust at the same time, there was applause in mission control. How about that? How about that? Mr. Galileo was correct in his findings. Superb. Then Scott drove the rover to a small rise about 300 feet east of the Falcon. From there, Mission Control would be able to aim the TV camera back at the lunar module and watch the liftoff. Scott made some final switch settings and then he pulled out a small red Bible and set it atop the rover's control panel. If anyone would come this way again, he wanted them to understand who had left this machine here. The next deviation from the checklist wasn't captured on camera, though Scott took photographs to mark the event. Scott wanted to perform a more private ceremony, 
with a much sadder note. Amid the euphoria surrounding the success of the Apollo program and the crew's feeling of great personal accomplishment at having achieved what had once seemed such an elusive goal, they wanted time to reflect for a moment on the human cost of the race to the moon. In a small depression about 20 feet from the rover, Scott placed a small statue and a plaque dedicated to the 14 American astronauts and Soviet cosmonauts who had lost their lives in pursuit of that goal. The 14 names listed in alphabetical order on that plaque are Charlie Bassett, Pavel Belyaev, Roger Chaffee, Yorgi Dabrowski, Ted Freeman, Yuri Gagarin, Edward Givens, Gus Grissom, Vladimir Komarov, Viktor Patsayev, Elliot C., Vladislav Volkov, Ed White, and C.C. Williams. Reflecting on their loss, Scott felt a strong sense of brotherhood with those men. Some had been close friends. Some he had only seen in formal photographs alongside a brief announcement of their deaths in the Soviet press. Scott then paused to take one last series of panoramic photos. Then, casting his eyes on the high slopes of a peak just to the south of Mount Hadley, he saw what looked like layers and automatically began describing them for the geologist. But Joe Allen cut him off. There wasn't time. One last comment on the mountain that's uh, south of Hadley. I can see uh, some large outcrops on the upper slopes, on the upper 10%. And uh, they really stand out, and there's a talus downslope. As a matter of fact, it almost looks like we have some layering on the upper slopes, the upper 10%. Apparently, okay, Dave, uh, we copy that. Uh, we need the camera fixed. Yes, sir. Go on right there. Roger, and uh, we're, in, we're interested in... Five degrees. Dodge, we're interested in uh, moving on back towards the limb. Carry the dust brush, brush with you. Back to the limb. Okay. Scott took off in long, easy strides heading across the rolling plains toward his lunar module. He could not deny a sense of loss, knowing that he would never return to this ultimate field site. But then he heard Joe Allen quoting the science fiction author Robert Heinlein. As the space poet Reisling would say, we're ready for you to come back again to the homes of men on the cool green hills of Earth. Thank you, Joe. We're ready to. But it's been great. Fabulous place up here. Scott felt the chin strap of his communications carrier rasp against a weak old beard. He'd promised his children he wouldn't shave until he got home. After all, explorers always come home with a beard. As he pulled himself up the ladder and onto Falcon's front porch for the last time, he felt certain no other experience in his life would ever compare with those three days on the moon. Scott's nature had always been to look for new challenges, and he knew he would continue to do that. But he also knew, even then, that he would never be coming back to the moon. 
Only four more astronauts were due to make that journey. The Apollo program was winding down, but he had no idea then just how definite an end to manned lunar exploration this would be. All he knew in those moments was that he had come to feel a great affection for this distant and strangely beautiful celestial body, in effect a small planet, constantly circling the earth. It had provided him with a peaceful, if temporary, home, but it was time to return to his real home back on earth. With Dave safely in the Falcon preparing for launch, he reflected on the poem Joe Allen had quoted, The Green Hills of Earth, by Robert Heinlein. Let the sweet, fresh breezes heal me as they rove around the girth of our lovely mother planet of the cool green hills of Earth. We've tried each spinning space moat and reckoned its true worth. Take us back again to the homes of men on the cool green hills of Earth. The arching sky is calling, spacemen back to their trade. All hands stand by, free falling, and the lights below us fade. Outride the sons of Terra. Far drives the thundering jets, up leaps a race of Earthmen, out far and onward yet. We pray for one last landing on the globe that gave us birth. Let us rest our eyes on fleecy skies and the cool green hills of Earth. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 348 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, Traverse 3. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on October 8th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 177 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. I would like to apologize for my gross mispronunciation of German words. (laughs) I had hoped to just play the clip for that, but it was strangely absent, just that little segment for some reason. Very disappointing. Anyway, I thought it was a nice tribute to Werner and the Germans who had designed and worked on the Saturn V. I am pleased to announce that both podcasts, the current one and the archive, are now available on Amazon Music for the low, low price of free. You can't beat the price, folks. (laughs) I haven't tried but you could probably just play it with Alexa if you wanted to. Of all the experiments performed by Apollo 15, 
astronauts, probably the most famous was the hammer and the feather. It is what I remember most from the mission. I think I saw this live or later in the day on a news broadcast, and it stuck with me. It really did. And it certainly has been showed countless times in schools around the earth. I even used it for the applied physics class I used to teach. So certainly a very famous and celebrated experiment that only took about a minute to do. A great lesson from the surface of the moon. I hope you enjoyed the poem Joe Allen quoted and I read in its entirety. It came from Robert Heinlein's short story entitled The Green Hills of Earth, and it was published in the February 8, 1947 edition of the Saturday Evening Post, and it was included in a collection of the same name first published in 1951. I believe in the story the poem was written by the blind space poet Reisling, but Robert Heinlein actually wrote it. Okay, lastly, I want to remind everyone we have the episode 350 Tang Ceremony coming up in a couple episodes. We usually celebrate episode milestones with the so-called favorite drink of astronauts, Tang. So if you want to participate, procure some Tang before episode number 350. If you're enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and a half years, we have been entirely listener-supported. We're currently enjoying the dog days of summer, even though it just turned fall, when contributions typically diminish. So if you would like to contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had some new contributions, and I would like to thank Matthew F. from Oakland, Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Starship level. Christopher T. from North Carolina donated at the Salute Skylab level. Dirk H. from New Zealand donated at the Soyuz level and earned a shooting star emoji. Andy M. from Dublin, Ireland donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Richard M. from Manchester in the UK donated at the Bostock level and earned a moon emoji. Edward N. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. And Travis H. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors are at 248. We lost one. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Now, what usually happens at this time of month on Patreon is supporters' credit cards expire and we lose some donors. We usually get those donors back, so if you think your credit card is about to expire on Patreon, give that a quick check if you wouldn't mind. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 395 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Wow, I did not think they were ever going to get that drill out. They really struggled with that, and I felt bad for Dave. And the time spent on the drill. Was it really worth missing the opportunity of exploring the North Complex? We may never know. Now, 
Are you ready for the SRH winner for this episode? Remember, you'll get the choice of a space rocket history magnet or two coasters or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Robert Mack. Robert Mack, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 395 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth by Al Worden, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and CBS News. That's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 349 posted by Thursday, October 8th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.